Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. So here's me, a young kid from this place that's not supposed to have toy companies, making it work, growing this thing and, and feeling kind of cocky. And as I've come to learn that a little bit of ego and pride leads to overhead and uh, just poor decision-making. And very quickly, the company went from being a hero to zero because we tipped some covenants with our bank, got upside down our balance sheet, and I was thrown to special loans. And that was actually in a fantastic forcing function to me to stop and reflect, you know, for maybe the first time in a long time as to what had gone wrong. The thing that I've come to learn is that pride cometh before the fall. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Brad, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Hey, I am super excited to be here today and uh, really looking forward to the conversation and seeing what we're going to explore together. Yeah. So I was introduced to you by way of Dan Martell and his wife. And when they told me you ran a toy company, I thought, yeah, I have a one-year-old nephew and I've always loved toys. So I definitely want to talk to Brad. Um, you have a new book out called Startup Santa, all of which we will get into. Uh, but given the subject matter of the book, I wanted to start by asking, what is the very first toy that you remember getting as a kid and how did that end up influencing where you've ended up and what you've been done with your life? Yeah, look, I, that's a great question because I think this is what I love about toys. Um, you know, toys are, well, let me answer it first by just saying this is what I think toys do. Toys are really important to our development, right? Because play is a part of how we develop as people and we learn um, how to interact. We learn new skills development. And we learn how to problem solve. And toys are a facilitator of all that. So, uh, and, I, and I love the fact that if you think back as a kid, you can remember those really uh, great toys, those moments where you, you got that thing under the Christmas tree and you opened up and it was like, wow, you were so excited because this, this toy was going to be full of possibilities and release your imagination. So for me, I was fascinated with flight. And I remember opening up uh, a big giant styrofoam glider. And the reason I was so excited about that, because I'd been with my parents in the mall, and I probably was six years old, um, and I was watching these guys throwing these gliders, 
and mm-hmm. the wives. I remember those loops. You remember these? Okay. And oh, the yeah. wives would do loops. And mm-hmm. I just was like captivated and mesmerized by the fact that this thing would fly and it was big and it was colorful. There were some stickers on the phone. And, uh, and I just instantly imagined, okay, I'm going outside and I'm going to make this thing glide down. We have this, like, we were up on a hill and there was a big lot below us. And I was, I was already imagining how I was going to explore all the possibilities of flight with this incredible new toy. So it wasn't the first toy I got, but it's the one that I remember that was really impactful for sure. How about you? Yeah. You know, it's funny, as you were saying that, I was trying to think back to the ones that stood out. Um, so there, there are two, two that come to mind. So my parents didn't have a lot of money when uh, we first moved from Australia to Canada. My dad had just finished his PhD. My mom was pregnant with my sister. And uh, I don't know if you remember key cars. They were like Hot oh, Wheels yeah. where you squeezed a key. Yeah. And I shot them under the fridge Christmas morning. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, my parents at that time were not resourceful enough to get them out. But my dad went to Japan in the 80s. And my dad literally hated anything that was not made in Japan. So anytime we would buy toys, he would go and look at them. He's like, this is a piece of crap. It was made in China. And like today I joke with him, like, Dad, you realize your iPhone is made in China, right? Like, yeah. He gets annoyed that things are made in China. But back then there was validity to that. And so he brought me this remote control boat. And really? I, because the Japanese were masters at making really, really high quality toys. Uh, I remember he brought a remote controlled boat uh, and we lived in Canada. We we're snowing like eight months of the year, you know, in Edmonton. So we'd have to go find swimming pools at relatives apartment complexes. But that toy stands out to me um, as, as one that really kind of struck me. Like I'd always loved those kinds of toys. Uh, yeah. Remote control airplanes, that kind of stuff. I got a, I had a remote control car. Um, and then we started looking at how expensive they got. He was like, can't, this is an expensive hobby. Um, yeah. but I think the, the, the thing that struck me most about what you said was like, just seeing a sense of possibility, uh, right the moment you walk into a toy store, you see a toy. And I feel like we lose that as, lose that as adults, like as adults, we're not as easily mesmerized. And I've, I've noticed this with my one-year-old nephew is that he's mesmerized by everything. Uh, mm. And the joke is, it's like, why do we buy this kid toys? He literally wants to play with like pots and pans. My sister was like, you guys got him a drum set. He ignored it. I gave him an open, uh, empty milk uh, can. And then he started using it as a drum. Yep. You know? um, yeah. But why do you think that is like, why is it that as adults, we don't have that same sort of childlike, you know, curiosity and that sense of possibility? Like what happens to that and how do we get it back? Yeah. And this is such a great question. And this is really a big part of my book is trying to just unpack what happens. Like, why is it that, you know, we grow up, we grow up, we get mature and we stop doing the things that we did as kids that really allowed us to grow and develop and and explore possibilities within us. Um, You know, I think Shaw said, you know, we don't stop playing because we get old, we get old because we stop playing. And, you know, as you think about kids and just all the energy and vitality that's in youth. Um, and just what are the attributes you would describe? You'd say, well, okay, they have incredible enthusiasm. They wake up excited to take on the day. Um, they have uh, incredible curiosity, you know, a caterpillar cr- crawling on the ground, a leaf that uh, is unique in color or shape. Um, they stop and pay attention to it, right? They have um, just abounding faith they believe anything's possible, right? They just, they can see it. They believe they could fly if they put on the right cape or that they could transform things into, you know, with magical tricks into something that was unique. 
Um, and, and they just, they're incredibly hopeful, right? They really yeah. do see the good and the possibilities. And, you know, I remember as a kid, I, I was going to be a fighter pilot, probably a fireman at some point, uh, uh-huh. potentially be a police officer. Um, you know, I was going to scale Everest. Uh, there just was no bounds. And what happens as we go through life, we start to, we just start to face friction. We just start to, mm-hmm. to feel resistance. And when that resistance hits us, we have, have a choice to make. We can either push back against it, but na- our natural tendency is to actually submit to it. And it's a slow process of building apathy over time. And, and, and apathy actually means a lack of passion. But when you think about kids, kids are very passionate, right? You see them, and of course, they, they get into fights and they are not great shares and all that because they're very passionate about the things that they love and what they want to do and being in the moment. But you see people go to this place of apathy. And Ben Franklin said, most people die at age 25. They just wait to 70 to get buried. And I think it's a sad statement or human experience, but I think it's what will happen if we don't lean into continually pushing against the natural tendencies, the natural gravity that um, the headwinds of life will, will, will force on you. And it's, it's a big part of the story in, in the book and how, you know, there's got to be purpose to your pain because pain is a part of life. Suffering yeah. is optional. Hey, you decide what the pain is going to mean. I'm a big believer that on the other side of the pain is a better version of yourself. There has to be purpose to your pain, but it's a choice, right? It's a, it's a choice that you decide what it's ultimately going to mean and how it's going to be form, formative to you. But it mm-hmm. is a part of our human experience that we can't, we can't, you know, the great, paradox of life for all the joy happiness and success that we're all striving to achieve we have to be willing to accept the pain the suffering and agony that comes along with just the 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 realities of life it's it's two sides of the same coin and unfortunately i think a lot of us just choose to get beaten down by the resistance by the difficulties and the pain and um and i i really believe that that's what drives away a lot of the fascination and imagination in terms of what's really, truly possible for our lives. Well, it's so fascinating that you mentioned observation, because I remember my parents came back from India, and my dad had hung up these paintings in uh, the entryway to our house, these new sculptures or whatever they were. And I, probably a good week and a half, when my dad went by, and my dad was like, what do you think of the new, new sculptures in the hallway? And I was like, there are new sculptures in the hallway? And I realized that as an adult, I walked through that door probably a thousand times and gone through the same routine a thousand times that I just kind of didn't pay attention. And mm. I thought, yeah, but if that was my nephew, he would have instantly noticed that. Yeah. You know, one of the things that um, I, I was fascinated to discover as I was going through the book was this study that NASA did um, in regards to human creative genius. And... um there, this the study was then translated into kids. They were tracking kids from early age all the way up to adulthood. And what they found is that the attributes for creative genius uh, for kids five and under was in the 90th percent. So in other words, most kids are born with an incredibly high EQ towards creative genius. They measured those same kids further down the line. I think it was uh, probably 12 year old, 10 or 12 years old, and suddenly found that it had gone from 90% down to like 50%. And then they followed them right through to adulthood. And by the time they hit their mid-20s, it had gone down to 2%. And it, it kind of just speaks to this, 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 I guess, momentum of life that 
you know, you can choose to participate in or become aware of it and then choose to push against it in terms of how do we continually remain childlike? Like, I think when Jesus called us to be like little children, I honestly believe that he wanted us to mimic and adopt these attributes of kids, of being eternally curious and fascinated and constantly imagining, like, you know, we, we were created to create. And I believe we live in a place that is full of our creator's imagination. And then we were called to continue to do it. This is something that we're supposed to be doing as humans. It, it's what makes us unique as humans. In fact, you know, the three things that make us unique are, you know, we're born for relationships. We thrive when we build relationships with others that are meaningful in terms of connections. We're called to be creative. We're called to actually unleash our creative force and our creative genius in the world to build more value for the planet and for people. And then we're empowered to choose. We get to choose that every other creature works off a habit and instinct. We get the opportunity to choose what we do with what happens. And we're the only species that can choose to be less than we were designed for. Like a tree will grow as high as it can. A squirrel will collect as many nuts as possible in the, before wintertime. A human can be less than the best version of themselves if they choose. So it, it's, it's incredibly daunting, but also incredibly rewarding to understand that that's an incredibly powerful, uh, unique attribute that we've been gifted as, as humans. And uh, it's up to us to decide how we, um, how we unleash that, how we release it. But I can tell you for someone like myself who's lived through a bunch of things and some things have been high and some things are low, my goal is at the end of my life to be laying on my deathbed knowing that I had wore out and not rusted out. That within my faculties that I had unpacked all the possibilities that I left behind in the field of life. I don't want to go to my grave thinking like, what if, what it could have, should have, right? Mm. So that is, I think, the call for all of us. So I think it starts mm. with childlike curiosity, imagination, faith, hope, and just enduring belief in, in anything was possible. What role do you think our education system plays in kind of drilling that out of us? Well, hey, I. Eh. <laughs> so I mean, it's me, a loaded question, I think. It's like you can hear my bias in the question. You know, and I'm the son of a college professor. Yeah. OK, I look, I here's my belief. Honestly, I, I think that um, school serves two possible two, two distinct functions in our life. It serves a function of getting us to think. Okay, to be problem solving and to be thinkers. And I think that's a really important um, skill set to develop. Second, you develop important relationships. I mean, I met my wife uh, in college. So uh, without going to college, I wouldn't have, have had that, that incredible blessing in my life. Um, beyond that, I'm just, you know, I think our current education system has, it's still legacy from the industrial revolution, industrial complex. Um, not to minimize it, I think it's very valuable to continue to learn, but I wouldn't say that I believe in finishing school. I believe that it's, you know, it starts at home. Uh, we are, we are the result of the environment that we are raised in. Uh, we, we actually adopt mimicry as a, a big part of who we are. So, you know, our first influences are going to have impact in the way that we learn and the way we see the world, our belief systems. Um, and so, if we know that, then I think the real education system starts at home, starts with yeah. you as the parents uh, leading by example and setting precedence for the way that your kids uh, ought to live a life of abundance. Um, but of course, school institutions, 
have a part to play. I just don't think they're the part that's going to make the most meaningful impact in terms of how someone forms their belief systems, their values, and the virtues that they would then want to um, express as they live out their lives. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, well, makes me think it's probably a good thing we're telling my one-year-old nephew every day that he's a genius. <laughs> I think affirmations of, 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 
of what you know to be true based upon scientific results is probably a good thing. Yeah, trust me, that guy has no lack of self-confidence. He's already pretty sure. I, I can tell half the time I'm thinking he's, the, he's in his mind, he's like, you guys are idiots. You keep asking me the same stupid questions over over again. I already showed you where the fan and the light are. Let's move to something else. <laughs> uh, so, you know, the, the, it's funny because as I was reading your book and I was thinking about all the brands that you mentioned, I've been thinking about sort of the evolution of toys because in the 80s, uh, you know, late 80s and 90s when I grew up and a toy came out, it just sort of had this iconic imprint. Like mm. you can take toys from the 80s, like a G.I. Joe or Transformers or things that you mentioned. I mean, there's even an entire Netflix show about this. Like mm -hmm. um, you remember the Cabbage Patch Kids craze, right? Sure. Uh, like that was the, one of the, the funniest things. My sister uh, was two at the time and Cabbage Patch Kids were expensive as hell. They were like $80. My dad was like, we can't afford that. So he got her a knockoff. And as a two-year-old, she literally looked at it and she was like, this is a fake. Really? Well, but of course, yeah, needless to say, you know, my sister is going to have her hands full with my nephew. Um, but the thing that, that, you know, really, as I've read through your book and as I'm talking to you, I'm thinking about it, is like, I don't feel like toys have that same sort of iconic imprint in mm. the way they used to in, in culture, right? Like, because if you think about those years, like you think about something like a Cabbage Patch Kid, like you associate that period of time with that toy because it was so prominent. Mm -hmm. um, so, like, what role do you think our advancements in technology have, you know, made toys better, or, like improved toys for better or worse? Because I think there are upsides, right? Like I'm thinking to my nephew, he has this little digital fake phone, but it actually teaches him things. On the flip mm -hmm. side, the toys that he seems to gravitate towards most, which makes me really happy, the first toy I ever got him was Curious George. And hmm. he still loves that thing. Um, yeah. And, but the thing is that, like, I can't think of a modern day Curious George equivalent. You, does that make sense? Do you, you see where I'm set going with this? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. It's, um, I think it's, it's just a phenom within our society in general as we've evolved. I mean, we talk about share of wallet, and I would just say share of mind. There's so many competitive forces now towards that. Like when we were growing up as kids, so I grew up in a very similar era as you. Um, there wasn't uh, mobile phones. There wasn't laptops. Um, there was no subscription video services. We had two channels, you know? Um, and so there was just time, capacity of time to invest into playthings, into be with physical toys. Cause that's, that was the alternative, right? That's really what, what was there at the time. Mm -hmm. But now there's a lot of competitive, competitive pressures into what is, what can we use to occupy our time that uh, unleashes our playful creativity? And it's not a negative thing, quite frankly. I think that a number of the new technologies are super helpful and a bunch of the toys have incorporated that into them. Um, but it's like anything in life, right? It, it's all about um, everything in, in sort of a reasonable amount is, is good. It's when it's excessive mm -hmm. that it becomes potentially harmful. And even with that, you know, I, I remember when I was a kid, you know, there would be times I'd be playing with my Capsella set. I don't even know if you know what that is, but it was like a construction toy that you connect these things together and you can make these robotic um, uh, vehicles and or mm -hmm. vehicles that actually run and stuff like that. And that, you know, my, my, my parents would say, you've got X amount of time to play with it. And if I exceeded that time, I was in trouble. Well, that's been replaced with like an app on a phone now, right? It's, it's play, yeah. it's engaging, it's, it, it, it's, it's unleashing creative forces and a part of development that is is a part of our humanity it's just a different medium by how we're doing it now um yeah. but you know it's it's like similar to 
um, I, I talk about this today, like iconic bands. Like I just went and saw U2 play at the Sphere in Vegas. Mm-hmm. Uh, mind-blowing experience, incredible. And, uh, but I grew up, uh, when I was in college, U2 released Octune Baby, and it was a, it was a uh, it, very influential album at a time in my life that I still go back to and I have all these fond memories. But let's also remember that there was no Spotify. There was no Apple Music. I mean, I had to buy, I think, I think I got the record. I'm not sure. But mm-hmm. I think CDs were just kind of starting to come out if, in a meaningful way. But it, it, there was limited mediums by which you could communicate with those artists. Therefore, there was less of them and they became iconic. Well, today, I mean, name a band in the last, you know, Taylor Swift aside, name a band in the last five years that truly uh, has become iconic. I mean, music yeah. has become much more uh, transactional. Like a song you like, you hear it for a while and then it's gone. And you probably don't even know the band. You just know the song. So there's mm-hmm. a, kind of a different dynamic. And I think toys have a similar sort of phenom that it's faster paced society, multiple competing mediums. And so those Cabbage Patch, Furbies, um, you know, yo-yos for that matter, right? Things that were really big at a period of time uh, that captured everyone's imagination and also, you know, uh, the medium by which they were communicated uh, was limited. It, it just was easier to to build that kind of phenomenon. And I think today it's just, it's just, it's a lot more noisy, a lot more busy, and, and it's harder to to stand out amongst the current environment. Yeah. Well, you're lucky that you got to be um, part of the Octane Baby generation. I unfortunately was part of the Discotech generation, which I think is the worst album that you do this time. Because uh, I remember very distinctly my first YouTube concert. That was the first concert I ever attended. It was in college. It was in Oakland, and the Discotech album had come out, and mm. they were they started the concert playing all you know some of the Discotech stuff, and people were just kind of underwhelmed. And then the minute they went back to the old stuff, everybody was thrilled. And then finally, on the next album, they got back to like the YouTube we know and love. Yeah, yeah. that always stayed with me as one of those bizarre experiences. I was like, Bono may think I'm an idiot for thinking that album sucks, but I'll probably never be Bono, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> Uh, have you uh have you listened to his audiobook surrender i've read the book okay all right yeah i read the book um i i I, youtube is to me one of those fascinating case studies because they're a a band that has sort of transcended time like i mean there's Mm -hmm. almost no musical group that has managed to stay relevant for multiple decades the way they have that i can think of yeah yeah, and, and evolved. And to your point, not all the evolution was good. I mean, I talked about that album they released free on Apple and how that was a disaster. And I love the fact that you just yeah. kind of owned it. Said that, mm-hmm. okay, we thought this was going to be a great thing by giving this away every Apple device. And in the end, everyone resented the fact that they were stuck with the... I, in fact, I think, I think I still have that album and I don't, I don't think I've ever listened to it in full because it was just not good. So, um, <laughs> yeah. But I yeah. love that he owned that, you know, they didn't get it right. They had some evolution that didn't go the way they wanted. And uh, yeah, I, I love as a band to see them though, that they've pushed the possibilities. They wanted to evolve. They wanted to grow. They wanted to continue to show that they weren't just like a one trick pony. And I think that kind of speaks to all of our humanity. It's like, let's, you know, the Greeks had this term called a rite. And uh, I, I love the term because basically it was something that was ascribed to people in Greek society that had, basically utilized all their faculties to their possibilities. They were just really, they, they used their physical strength. They were wise. They uh, were, were caring for the community. And they just, they, they did as best they could with everything they got. And if I think about you two as a band, I think they have really evolved and they've tried a bunch of things and they didn't get it all right. 
but they're at a point where, you know, this, the sphere crescendo, if we're going to call it that is, you know, it's the most incredible multi-sensory experience I've ever been in. And it just, it was focused on Octoon Baby, but they brought in some Joshua Tree and some other iconic uh, songs into it as well. And it just showed how they, as over a band over time, as you said, have progressed and been relevant right up until modern day. It was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, talk to me about the trajectory that gets you to actually starting a toy company. And, and, you know, what advice did your parents give you about making your way in the world? Like, what role did they play in you ending up here? Uh, how have you gotten to the point where you ended up starting a toy company uh, and then now writing a book about the experience? Yeah, look, I, I tell people that my life is a series of happy accidents. It makes no sense that I started a toy business because <clears throat> I don't come from the toy business. In fact, I come from a line of chiropractors. Like my father's a chiropractor. His father and mother were chiropractors. My great-grandfather was the very first chiropractor in Denmark. So this was kind of like what we did as Petersons. Um, and, and then on top of that, we grew up in the, the prairies of Canada that were known for oil and agriculture. Um, toy companies didn't exist there. So um, what I can say, though, that my, my dad was such an incredible influence, even though he was a chiropractor, he always had businesses that he was invested into or yet on the side. And he was very creative and entrepreneurial. And he always challenged me um, to push the possibilities of, of what I was able to do. And so, you know, he, he actually subscribed to a magazine that I was in his office one day. I was, I was actually going to college, going into chiropractic. So I was in pre-chiropractic. I'm sitting in his office and I read this uh, article about a kid who invented a toy and it was a rags riches story. And it was about a flying toy, which I've already told you, I love flying toys. And I was super intrigued, inspired. I ordered some, they got shipped to me. I played with it. I thought it was super cool. And then I got this idea. I said, I wonder if I could sell these. And, um, you know, fortunately for me, they were just as naive about Canada as I was about selling toys. So it was kind of like a perfect, marriage of people who didn't know what they were doing. And um, I became a distributor of toys in the Canadian market. That was my first product. And uh, it was an amazing product because it had to I had to solve a bunch of problems. You, you couldn't sell it just by looking at it. You had to demonstrate it. So that forced me to think about marketing and then distribution and then ultimately uh, licensing partnerships. And, and um, it was kind of a crazy, just early beginning that probably shouldn't have worked, but because I had the willingness, the curiosity first and foremost about the, what could happen there, the creativity to put together a proposal around a business and then try and make it work. And then the courage to just try, which is kind of the combination of the three things that are needed to, to launch any idea. And that's, you know, how I had the happy accent of launching into the toy business. Well, one of the the things that you talk about in the book was the fact that, you know, this didn't go very smoothly. In fact, you had some problems. And uh, this in particular struck me. You said, what I did not realize at the time is that fast, undisciplined growth tends to sugarcoat systematic problems that have left unchecked and have grave consequences for a company unknown to us. Our fast growth lulled us into a ready fire aim approach. We were growing recklessly, flying by the seat of our pants. And through the grit and sheer force of will, we somehow managed to always pull off our plans. So the funny thing about that is I think that, you know, when people are building a business, like, you know, you talk to any online business owner, like, oh, we wish we were bigger, we wish we were growing more. And like the idea of undisciplined growth, I think just doesn't really occur to people. Like, I mean, I think we've seen the consequences of that in Silicon Valley, where you have serious problems, you know, ranging all the way from what Facebook is like today 
do, you know, something like a, um, uh, what is it? Uh, a Theranos, you know, where nobody is, there, there are no like sort of checks and balances, but how do you get yourself into a place? Like when people are, you know, craving growth, why do they not even think about undisciplined growth? Like that just doesn't occur to you. I think when you're early on, you're just like growth. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, um, <clears throat> people ask me all the time, what's your greatest regret in business? Um, and I tell people that if I had to go back in time, first of all, I say, I wouldn't change anything because I had to go through what I went through in order to become who I am today. So, I mean, there was a bunch of unhappy moments in my life, but somehow that was a part of my journey to grow through that. Um, but if I had to change one thing, I would have went and worked somewhere else and learned uh, from somebody else's mistakes versus my own mistakes, um, how to properly uh, build, grow and sustain a business. And when you grow a business, there's kind of like four phases it goes through. It's starting a business, scaling a business, then you're trying to sustain the business, make it profitable. And then there's a succession side of it. At some point down the road, you need to figure out how you're either going to sell it and or have a new generation come in and run it. So mm -hmm. um, I, uh, I spent, obviously, I was in my early 20s when I got into this business. Um, I was incredibly energetic, enthusiastic, and my real attribute at the time was I was just the hardest person, the hardest working person I knew. I would just go longer and harder than anyone else. I just never gave up. I was very tenacious and I would just really try. And uh, so for me, growth was not an issue. I found ways to grow the business. And in fact, um, most of my startups have had high growth. But <clears throat> that first startup in particular, I learned a bunch of tough lessons. And Here's the thing. We all are supposed to grow. That is a part of our human experience. You are supposed to grow. It's about growing in a way that's sustainable, that actually is measurable, and it's not just growth for the sake of growth. Um, and I found out the hard way that if you grow too fast, too quickly, that you can break things. And there's three areas I identify that need to be constantly reinvented. And reinvented, the frequency of that reinvention just depends on the, the, the state of your growth. And those three things are your people, the people you surround yourself with, because, you know, as a founder, when you start off, you're the one doing all the work, but, you know, you can only do so much. Ultimately, if you want to scale something to significance, you have to bring in others around you to complement your efforts and to, you know, build uh, in redundancy to where you're not necessarily strong. So reinventing your people, reinventing your systems. So the systems, everything from the ERP you're using to track things but also the cadence and the rigor by which you're measuring, you're inspecting what you're expecting and how you're communicating and how people are all singing from the same song sheets. And that, you know, every time you grow a business, you break systems and you break the way that flows happen and you get upset customers and or problems. So it's constant reinvention. And then finally, the third thing is you have to reinvent your cash because the businesses I've been involved in have required cash to get going. Most businesses require a certain amount of seed capital and or, you know, venture capital to get them up and running. And oftentimes you don't realize, you just say, oh, we need to grow. It'll be fine. We grow and that generates cash and that's how we grow. Well, typically you have to like, you know, it's like going to a fireplace and say, give me heat and I'll give you wood. No, mm -hmm. you have to give it wood first and then it gives you the heat. So cash goes in to hire the people, to build the products, to then be able to solve a problem and sell products and or services that usually you're getting paid for on some kind of terms. At least in my case, it was like we made toys in Asia. We had to ship them on the water, put them in a warehouse, ship them to customers who took, you know, up to 180 days to pay us. Well, to grow that model, 
you need a whole lot of cash to order the product in order to get paid down the road. So those three areas are the flanking maneuvers, if they're not reinvented, that will come back and haunt you. So everyone wants to grow. It's aspirational. And I, I warn founders, I say, yes, you do want to grow. However, make sure you're getting ahead of your growth, that you're growing these three things, these potential flanks within your business, um, so that you don't actually end up being flanked by not having those in place ahead of the problem. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. 
it, it's funny you say that. Um, I think it was actually Dan Martell who recommended the book on his email, which is uh, Victor Chang's book, Extreme Revenue Growth, where he actually talks about systems. And he says one of the first things he does when he works with companies to get them to a million to 25 in revenue is sit down and make them document every single process. And mm-hmm. he was like, if it sounds mind numbing, that's because it is. And yet he said, you you can't do it, you know, you can't scale without it. Because like, I, I, after reading that, I finally realized why companies like Google have like these HR departments and all these processes and procedures, which seem like bureaucratic bullshit. And then you realize it's like, oh, that's actually necessary in order to, you know, maintain this thing. But I, I think the other thing, you know, when I think about uncontrolled growth, like we've seen this happen to bloggers who, you know, have some blog post go viral and, you know, they get flooded with like thousands of email subscribers and they haven't monetized the thing at all. And suddenly their email newsletter costs, you know, way more than they were ever expecting. It was like goes from like, you know, an $80 a month service to now $600 a month and they're bringing in nothing. Hmm. Uh, But yeah, I mean, I I think that systems are one of those things like they sound boring, but I have found over and over again that like once you start to codify processes, it makes a world of difference. Yeah, look, it, it... And it's sorry, the fear of constraints, <clears throat> you, it sounds obvious, but it's not, you're as strong as your weakest link. So mm-hmm. as you go through and look at your organization and how ultimately what we're doing is the business of business is people and we're solving somebody's problem with our business or service. So how do we ensure that we get that product or service to the customer in as low a friction free way that ensures that they're delighted by the experience? And, you know, in the, in the beginning, it's easy. Like if you're, a bakery and you're, you're making muffins and all of a sudden they become the most, you know, sought after muffins in the world. You just have to actually, you know, now you got to hire people, get more equipment. Maybe you have to expand your facilities. Well, there's all kinds of things that will break if you don't actually have the systems uh, yeah. to be able to make sure that that customer at the other end is getting the product on time, right quality and ensuring the experience is, is delightful. And mm-hmm. uh, it sounds, it sounds simple. It is simple. It's just really hard to consistently manage that unless you're going to reinvent these things on an ongoing basis. Well, let's talk uh, about the role of the CEO because you talk about the three lo- roles of the CEO being vision, values, and ta- you know finding talent. And you know it's funny because there are books like Start with Why, and every one of these sort of books, you know, we kind of conceptually get it, and yet they're really hard to kind of make actionable because um, vision is often so sort of broad and vague. Um, so talk to me about how those things actually get determined. I mean, finding talent, that obviously means, you know, sometimes you make bad hires to find good ones. But um, that one, I think, is a bit more straightforward. But like vision and values, I feel like can be somewhat nebulous. Mm. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I I don't think I got this right until these most recent companies. Um, in fact, I think I confused and conflated a bunch of ideas about what it really means to uh, have a vision and to have values. So first of all, I just want to clarify that it depends on the um, what phase of business you are in. Like if you're in the startup mode um, where you just get an idea off the ground, you know, in that case, you as a CEO, or probably the, uh, the founder or co-founder, you're a generalist. You're doing everything, right? It's, it's hard to do anything but just make sure kind of the thing is going. Um, but as you're starting to scale up, and this is really where the, the focus of my comments are, the three things that the founder has to be thinking about all the time is setting the vision. So there's a difference between purpose and vision in my experience. The purpose is the purpose of the company. It is what are you called to do? And it's something that 
we believe is very sacred. Like we tell people we are a purpose for the company. When I think about Lomi and Pila and what we're doing with those, we've got this incredible purpose to make impact. We're creating a waste-free future, which in our lifetime is probably never going to happen, but we're going to put momentum in place to actually get that to become a possibility. And that is sort of the overall purpose of why this organization exists. It's the why, right? The vision is seeing that these are the steps that we have to take in series of one, three, and five years to move us towards that purpose. And so when I say the CEO is setting the vision, they've already identified what the purpose statement is, which is the why statement for the business. The vision is an ongoing view down the, you know, it's taking the telescope and looking towards your destination and kind of zooming back a little bit to say, okay, in order to get there, here's what we have to be in the next 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, 36 months. And quite frankly, 36 months is kind of the farthest out that I look because I think it's hard to predict what the planet is going to be doing, particularly in the rate of change that we have at this point in time. But you're visioning the possibilities. You're casting that vision into that future, which is kind of what I love about being an entrepreneur is that we're time traveling. We're literally going into the future, imagining what it could look like, and then we're coming back and we're creating it. <laughs> Everything's created twice, first in our minds, and then we action it, right? So setting the vision is basically evangelizing your team that this is where we're going to be in 12 months, here's going to be in 18 months, and this is going to be in, in 36 months as best as we can, okay? Because of course, it is, it's dynamic and we have to be fluid and we have to be willing to be nimble. And along the way, we, we may have to change course, right? It is, it's not like we get this perfect every time. So it's an ongoing process, it's not a one and done, it's ongoing and it's something we're doing on an annual basis, quarterly basis, and quite frankly, even weekly, based on feedback, we will do slight course corrections along the way. But setting the vision and then ensuring that they have the right resources in place to make it possible, coming back to the systems, the processes, and then people. So the people is the second role of a CEO in scale-up mode. And the idea is this, that as a CEO, if I said you should double your business, you could probably imagine how it would be possible with you on your own, just more effort could double the business. But if I tell you to 10 times your business, that's going to like break your head to even imagine what would need to happen in order to 10x the outcome. In that case, the only way it's possible is to actually hire the people that would actually be able to then come in and go from being generalist to specialist. And the, if you get it right, okay, it's not additive, it's exponential. Like high-performing teams, when they're high-performing and they're working together, they are creating exponential outcomes. And I tell uh, people that my belief system is this, is if you hire the right people, they're free because the value they're going to create is so much greater than what you're going to pay them that they'll absolutely more than pay for themselves and then some in terms of the value you create. So mm-hmm. that is the people side. And then finally is the values. And I, we call them values. I think they're more like virtues. They're the attributes of behavior. So you as a CEO can say, you know, our, our, our value is courage. Like if, for instance, we and Pila have um, four values. One of them is courage. And courage is taking action despite uncertainty. So it can't just be a noun. It's got to be like described as behavior because that's what that's about. It's, it's the behaviors of the organization. And the values and or virtues of a company is going to be determined based on the people you hire, right? They will ultimately create the culture based upon the behavior that you're hiring for. And that's why it's really important to have clear values and or virtues so that you know exactly these are the type of people we're looking for. But then you as a CEO need to live it out best than anyone. You can't say we have courage as a, as a value or virtue 
and then do things that are not courageous or, or yeah. you're out of integrity with what you're saying is important to you. Right. Um, and then it's also using those as a baseline to uh, call people out, both good and bad. So when people are like, I would tell you at our all hands, we <clears throat> monthly all hands, when we have people together, we go through our values every single time we talk about them. And then most importantly, we call out people who've lived them. We create, we want people to see examples of where they've lived that out. And we want to celebrate it because we want to see more of it. You will get more of what you focus on. And if you focus on what you want in terms of good outcomes, you'll get more of that out of your organization. The flip side is that, particularly within our executive leadership team, you need to call people out when they're not living in the integrity of those values. And quite frankly, if teammates uh, are not living in those values, that is how we let people go. Because ultimately, that is the behavior set. It's, your behavior is, is it's so important to ensure you get this right because if you give any uh, leeway in this, it becomes the new standard that everybody gets measured by. So it's something you got to hold on is very, very sacred. So again, uh, the three things that, you know, I think a CEO should be doing, setting the vision. They should be hiring the right people and empowering them and unleashing the possibility of them. And then living up the values better than anyone else in the organization and or celebrating them when they see it in others. Yeah. Well, it's funny because it, it reminds me of uh, a story that Sam Altman told. They made the entire Y Combinator uh, curriculum available via a podcast called How to Start a Startup. And he was talking about culture and how hard it is to get it right. Mm -hmm. And uh, Airbnb said did an exceptional job of this. And apparently Brian Chesky at the you know, early days of Airbnb, when he would interview people, he would ask them if they would still take the job if they had a year to live. <laughs> like, that's how dedicated he had gotten these people to this sort of mission and culture of Airbnb. Uh, I, th I think it's such a great, um, I mean, that question really quickly distills down. Is this something I'm passionate about? Is this something I feel this is worth my life? But like, your life is limited, which it is for all of us, by the way, then yeah. what are you going to give your precious, most precious resource to that really you believe is, is being in good conscious, a steward of. So I, I love that, that call out. And I also love, um, um, Tony Shea, uh, when he would hire people and, and then bring them in through his, uh, uh, Zappos university at the very end, he would offer people, I think it was two or three grand if yeah. they would leave. And very quickly, flush out the mercenaries from the missionaries. The missionaries are there for the mission. They believe in what you're doing. The mercenaries, they take the cash. Good way to get rid mm -hmm. of them because they're going to cost you more money down the line. Smart. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about something else that you said in the book. This really stood out to me. You said pride typically flows from the intoxication of success at the apex of accomplishment. Just when it seems we can rest on our laurels, relish in our achievements, or take delight in what our hands have created, this is when we are most at risk. And you said success often leads to pride and pride quickly results in excess overhead, apathy, and a lack of vigilance. Left unchecked, it will be the flanking factors that compromise your business and be the beginning of the end at a once promising of a once promising opportunity. It, I think that stood out to me because I have experienced this myself. And mm -hmm. I remember my mentor, Greg, used to tell me that, you know, in every business, you have something called the momentum window, where if you play your cards right, you'll never be back down at the same level again. And the funny thing is that as I thought about that, anytime I've had a moment in the spotlight, I become exceptionally paranoid. Um, mm. This is really dangerous because this is a pinnacle and it should not be seen as such. Like I'm always very wary of moments in the spotlight now because I've seen how much that can blind you to like the reality of a situation. Yeah. 
nothing fails like success. Um, in general, by the way, success tends to be a terrible teacher. Um, and I think that, um, you know, speaking from my own personal experience, so, you know, young age, start this toy company, um, scale it quickly, get lucky. Let's be clear. I mean, a big part of success in business is that it's the right idea at the right time. And that timing piece is really why we call luck. Like meeting my wife, you know, we walked in the same hallway at the same time in university and it was the most lucky thing ever happened to me. But it's amazing that if you get some of that early success, two things happen. You start to feel like you're pretty good. And secondly, because you were successful, you don't stop to really reflect on it. You just, oh, that's the way it is, right? We, we tend to reflect only when things go bad. We're forced to stop and we go, oh, what happened? How did it happen? Why did that happen? How can I learn from that and unpack the lessons from it? Whereas success, we don't naturally do that. Um, and I think it's actually an important lesson on its own. But at a young age, I had built success, had momentum, and you know, our company was actually tracking to the top 100 fastest growing companies in Canada five years in a row. And so here's me, a young kid from this place that's not supposed to have toy companies, making it work, growing this thing and, and feeling kind of cocky. And as I've come to learn that a little bit of ego and pride leads to overhead and uh, just poor decision making. And very quickly, the company went from being a hero to zero because we tipped some covenants with their bank, got upside down our balance sheet, and I was thrown to special loans. And that was actually in a fantastic forcing function to me to stop and reflect, you know, for maybe the first time in a long time as to what had gone wrong. And uh, so as I, 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 and, you know, I've had many other sort of, I would say, tragic business events over time. Although my father used to say all the time that if money can solve your problem, it's not really a problem. And he's right, because if it comes down to your health and or your family, those are real problems, financial problems. While they are a problem in the moment, they typically are something you can solve, which is some time and creativity. But the thing that I've come to learn is that pride comes before the fall. And uh, in fact, Jim Collins documented this in the, uh, when, he, when he actually, after good to great and built to last, he went out and wrote How the Mighty Fall. He said, okay, there's a pattern for how these companies have gone big. Is there a pattern for how these companies go from you know, being world-class brands like Rubbermaid and Zenith to capitulation? And the very first step, is hubris, born of success. You stop doing the things you used to do to earn the success and start expecting you deserve it. And that's actually a really important thing to think about. Like it took us a lot of hard work to get to a place to earn the supposed success. But when you go to a place mentally where it's like, no longer do I have to do that work, I just deserve it because of who I am and the brand I am, the way I show up. I think it's something we're all pretty susceptible to, quite frankly, and, and I'm not immune to it even at this point in my life. And so I think it's, it's one of those really important things to constantly think about. Like my, my coach says to me all the time, like a skilled hunter knows how to hunt. The master hunter knows how he or she is hunted. And what that really means is if it's true that success kind of leads to complacency and instead of earning it, you now believe you deserve it, and that is, I know that's true for me because I've experienced it firsthand. Then what do I need to do to ensure that I remain humble and that I look at these outcomes as blessings and things that were actually um, probably more time? I mean, yes, I had to put the work in, but timing had a lot to do with it. Let's be clear. Yeah. Like, I love this guy Roz question, like, were you good? Were you lucky? It's like a lot of people are kind of stuck, but I'm like, hey, yeah, I had to do something, but let's 
face it, my idea at this time was also a big part of why this became the outcome we got. Mm-hmm. But just making sure that you never let your ego get in the way of the rational decisions and understand you still have to do the work. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I think you're alluding to the importance of context. You know, people will ask me on podcasts for advice. And I like literally, I've probably said a hundred times, like I, I should preface this by telling you to consider the possibility that everything I'm telling you is bullshit because it very, very well could be in the context of your life. Like I'm under no delusion that like I'm anything special because I realized I was like, I was the beneficiary of a 10 year head start on what became a massive cultural trend, which is podcasts. Like, we started in 2009. I'm like, nothing that I did would work for anybody today. Hmm. You know, and that was just the, the luck of timing. But I, I want to come back to luck because I know you talk about the different types of luck later on in the book. Um, but I actually want to talk about your sort of, uh, you know, economic philosophy, because you say in the book that most people believe that there are only two basic forms of economic philosophy, pure capitalism, a system in which greedy people race to the top, collecting as much as they can for themselves, Pure socialism, supposedly the antithesis of capitalism as a sharing system with no exorbitant winners. And you said the problem with this capitalism versus socialism dichotomy is that they both focus on greed as the central component, one suggesting the solution, the other that it's the problem. Um, so talk to me ab- about this in the context of sort of the modern world where you know, we're not, you know, you, I, I doubt you're under any delusion. We're dealing with like massive inequality in our world right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, look, I think... Um... So we grew up in Western culture. <clears throat> we were taught that capitalism is good. Um, in fact, I, I, I still remember when Gordon Gekko said greed is good. <laughs> that was kind of mm-hmm. like a, a meme for a period of time. Um, and, and we were taught to go be, you know, uh, we want to be economic developers. We want to grow businesses. We want to build things that actually uh, create value. And I, I agree with all of that. However, uh, the philosophy of greed is where I focus on using people to acquire more things and more capital. Whereas what I propose is outside of capitalism and socialism, and like I'm just going to leave socialism to the side because I think we have enough evidence to prove that there's not a bunch of people trying to escape from North Korea, Cuba, or Venezuela, yeah. uh, or, or people trying to escape to go into those countries. It's the reverse. So those we've now over 100 million people dead after a century of trying that. I think that model is pretty self-explanatory in terms of why it doesn't work. But back to capitalism, my nuance is that it's more about free enterprise. And some people say, well, they're one and the same. I've said, I don't agree with that because if you take the root of what free enterprise is, it's about creating freedom. Freedom for humanity and freedom for yourself through executing really well. At the end of the day, we get compensated for the value we create in the marketplace. It's that simple. And the more value you create, the more you get compensated in terms of enduring enterprise. Yes, there can be Ponzi schemes and things like that short term that do that. But if you want to create something that's enduring and durable, it's about how can I create as much value as possible? Well, what is value made up of? Value is made up of more freedom and optionality for people with the way they live their lives. And as a free enterpriser, as the name uh, bespokes, is that your goal is to continue to expand more freedom into people's lives and where you're actually using things to build more value for people. So it's a flip. It's you know the same idea, but it's a flip in terms of if I focus on just creating enough value and enough freedom for the world and for people around me, by default, almost by as a byproduct, I will be compensated. And I and the compensation could come in terms of monetary recognition, whatever. But it's not the focus that we're actually chasing. 
which I allude to as the four P's, power, prestige, possessions, and pleasure. You chase those four things, you'll never have enough. It's like chasing rainbows. It'll constantly just satiate you for a short period of time and you got to get more. Or as I talk about focusing on the four C's, which is challenges, contributions in the form of charity and or creativity, and then connections, meaningful connections with people. So use things and value people and create more freedom in a free market economy is ultimately what I believe is the enduring and durable way to build meaningful enterprises. Well, let's talk uh, about the four types of luck that you uh, discuss in the book, which are dumb luck, grit luck, attraction luck, and seeing luck. Because, you know, I, I think that uh, people who are self-made, you know, they never like to talk about the role of luck. Uh, and, and it's one of those things where I'm like, you know what, there are a lot of factors that are actually quite lucky, like being born in a certain decade is a, a factor of luck that's completely out of your control. But mm-hmm. talk to me about, I mean, that's probably dumb luck, right? So talk to me about each one of these and how they play a role. Yeah, well, I think you gave a great example. Being born at this point in time, living in these incredible countries, I mean, that's just dumb luck. I had no control over that. I just happened to be here running into my wife at uh, in the hallways at college again. That was just super dumb luck. Um, so that happens to all of us, and uh, we're going to have various doses of it. That's not something we can control. It just happens to, to, to happen. The second one is what I call grit luck. And grit luck is really just where you just keep at it. You just don't quit. So you're kind of in the mud, the blood and the flood of whatever you're doing. You get knocked down, but you don't stay down. You choose to get up again and take your learnings and maybe do, a, you know, either persist or pivot or whatever is, is the outcome, but you continue to go forward until you finally get to a place where you've achieved luck. You've been able to to build something. And and I had that happen with my my toy business. You know, I just didn't quit. I went through bankruptcy three times. <laughs> I'm a slow learner. So, you know, on the other side of just gritting it out, I eventually got to a place where I had an exit and uh, that afforded me freedom and optionality to then go chase uh, other opportunities. The third is sea luck. And sea luck is where You've been in the game, you've seen kind of trends and patterns. And, you know, the analogy I use in the book is with surfing. Um, when you become a skilled surfer, you can scan the horizon and you can see the swells coming. And you can kind of judge the size of the swell, uh, how big the wave is going to be based on that swell, and kind of where you need to be in order to ride that wave. And, you know, I would say that my current businesses that I'm involved in with both Peel and Lomi, that those are examples of, of sea luck, is that when I left the toy business and I was deciding what I wanted to do when I grew up again, um, I, I sort of picked areas that I was passionate about. Um, and one of them was around sustainability, particularly because I'd been in a business where I'd shipped, you know, billions of pieces of plastic around the planet. And, you know, most of those ended up in landfill. So I had some, you know, recompense to make for all that. And so the ability to see the change of, of, of what's happening and position yourself as best as you can to take advantage of that change. And then the third type is a track luck. And this is just, you become so good at what you do, you're world-class in your respective area, that people are coming to you because you're just that well-known. Um, yeah, and lots of examples of, of, of that with people like, well, Dan Martell is a good, good friend of ours. And, you know, he's, he's just, he's so good at what he does with SaaS that he gets a bunch of people who come to him because they want him involved in their ventures, whether he's an investor or advisor or somehow involved. So, and I think that that's just comes with time time and experience absolutely i love that i mean i love the surfing analogy because i'm a surfer so um i I surfed for 10 years prior to moving to colorado so i totally get that like that is one of those experiences where it's 
it's funny because I think that, you know, so many of the things that you and I have been talking about in this conversation, I, I feel like they're hard to truly understand until you've lived them. Like, I don't mm. think reading about them is enough. Uh, it, it's like, so for example, you go to business school, right? And you basically do all these case studies and all this other stuff. And I'm like, yeah, but the truth is in the real world, they're idiosyncrasies and, and dynamic variables that don't express themselves in a static situation, like reading about it in a book that you can only learn through experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Look, I, I think going to school, get an MBA to learn how to run a business is the same as reading a book to learn how to surf. Until, <laughs> until you get in the water and start paddling with the board, it is, that's how you're going to learn. That's how you're actually going to benefit from the experience. So yeah, well, I wrote an entire business book with surfing as a backdrop or metaphor as a metaphor. And I think one of the lines in that book was like, you don't catch waves standing on shore, you catch them in the water. Amen. <laughs> well, let's talk briefly about some of these rock bottom moments like bankruptcies and, and stuff like that. Like, I think that psychologically, you have to be a certain type of person to be able to navigate those. And I'm guessing it's kind of like, you know, I had a chapter in, in my book called The Impact Zone. You know, you've alluded to mm. surfing, so you probably know what that is. Like in the impact zone, you're just getting your ass handed to you one wave after another, thinking it's never going to end. And I realized after, I think, six, seven years of surfing, I was like, okay, that each one of those, like the more the, of the waves that you take on the head, the easier it is to actually handle being in that place. Mm -hmm. um, but talk to me about the psychology of navigating these very, very challenging moments. Because I remember in the, you know, not, not to keep beating a dead horse, but in that Sam Altman started how to start a startup podcast, one of the things that he talked about, which was the very last lecture, was managing your psychology. And the crazy thing I think that struck me about that is people, he said that people think it gets better. He said, but it actually gets worse because the highs are higher and the lows are lower. Um, so talk to me about navigating that sort of, you know, part of running a business because I think anybody who does anything entrepreneurial is going to go through that at one point or another. This is, uh, again, the great paradox of, of our humanity. Um, I think you have to kind of come back to first principles of understanding, you know, what it takes to be fully human. And, you know, to be a human, you need to eat, you need to sleep. You need exercise, you need relationship, water. These are the basics of Maslow's hierarchy. And I would add to it, you need struggles. You need difficulties because this is the only way that we actually develop our potential. It's no different than you and I going to the gym. And if you want to develop our, our, our muscles, you have to be willing to, to break them down. You have to hurt yourself in small doses to actually build back stronger. Um, and the word resilience gets used a lot, and I think it's a good word, but I don't think it's actually the right word because you know resilience just means you're coming back to where you were. You want to be anti-fragile, uh, using the scene Taleb's word, where you're actually getting coming back and you're actually better than you were before. Um, yeah. And so I think if you understand that that's a part of the process, and in fact, biomimicry all around us shows that to be true, like you prune trees in nature to grow back stronger and more fruitful. Um, you know, snakes shed their skin to grow to, which I'm assuming is not a, a pleasant process. I'm assuming there's some pain involved in that to be stronger on the other side of it, a bigger version of themselves. And I just think if we understand that about our humanity, then uh, we should expect that struggles are how we build strength. Challenges are how we forge our character. And through our adversity, if we choose, we can then turn it to our advantage if we take the lessons and we become better for it. So look, I, I don't recommend people take my path. Like I said, I went through three bankruptcies. 
Um, in the time, I can tell you they were terrible. Um, you know, I lost a million dollars of friends and family money in the first one, which it was really hard to go home for Thanksgiving and Christmas and try and have you know, conversations. <laughs> um, and, uh, so at the moment it was a felt terrible experience, but now as I reflect back on it, the point is I had to choose what it meant. Like what happened, happened. I got to choose what it meant and I could either become a victim of what happened or I could use that to actually forge my character to be more resilient and resourceful and anti-fragile. And fortunately, I had a great role model was my father who, you know, there was many, many times that he would counsel me through really difficult times and just said, Brad, don't despise the process for what it's making of you. I know it's hard, but this is a part of you becoming you. And um, those words of encouragement kept me going. And, you know, I realized that there was very few things I could control. I could control what I what I say, what I do, what I think, and ultimately what I choose to feel. The first feeling you'll feel, whatever it is, if you feel sad, you will feel it. But then you get to choose if you're going to land on that or turn into something that's more resourceful for you. And I think the most important thing is just keep moving, just one step at a time. Sometimes that's all it is, just one step at a time, but just keep moving your feet. And as I reflect back now, which it's easy to do now, I can see that those were all inflection points that forced me to stop that ultimately led to a better business, a better outcome that I wouldn't have found otherwise. Because if I'd been kept going, I would have been just on that business, which at the time seemed like a pretty good model, but it would have been successful, so there was no need to change. The challenges became the forcing function of me being forced to stop and then reflect, choose again, and oh, this is a better business than that was. Oh my gosh, who knew? And you know, ultimately, that is, I would say, today. I said beginning series of happy accidents. I have literally failed forward. Like where I am today is a result of a bunch of mistakes that forced me to stop, unpack the lessons, choose again. And so far, uh, the choices have led to a better future. Well, I think that makes a beautiful place to wrap up our conversation. So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Courage. I think that that is the most important virtue. Um, Aristotle defined the four virtues back many, many years ago and said that it was justice, prudence, temperance, and courage. And he talked about courage being the cardinal virtue because the other three don't matter until somebody first has the courage to do something. And um, ideas are like noses. We all have them. It's what you do with those ideas that ultimately turns it into something meaningful that can build value for you and society. So I, I think if you're choosing to be unmistakably uh, remarkable in your creative endeavors, it takes the courage to take those creative ideas, the curiosity, the creative ideas, and then the courage to actually try. Beautiful. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your insights, and your wisdom with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, the book, your work, and everything else? Yeah, you can go to bradpeterson.com and Peterson spelled all with E's and echoes and D's and delta. Um, most people get it wrong, but it's the Danish way. And uh, you can also go to startupsantabook.com and uh, we offer the first chapter for free. Uh, and we have some videos and resources that I think could be very helpful for founders. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.